We let you preach one time last Sunday night, and then you shut everybody else off. Is that the way this works, Tim? Um, thought we could do a few Sunday nights out of Proverbs, and um, nothing um, long, but just some great advice, practical advice out of Proverbs. I don't know if you're familiar with the story from uh, 1945. I wasn't, I, several years ago I read about Lieutenant Colonel William Smith. He's the only man to ever fly a plane into the Empire State Building. He was flying a B-25 from Bedford, Massachusetts to Newark, New Jersey. Uh, he was in the Air Force, and as he was flying to land in um, Newark, the tower told him that the clouds were so heavy on that day and the fog so low that he might want to take a different route to come into the airport because the skyscrapers in downtown New York were not visible uh, the tops of them were not, and he might not be able to see them. And, of course, back in 1945, this was long before all the GPS. And, and he said, confidently, I've flown this route before. Don't worry about it. A few minutes later, the tower came back on and told him, the clouds and fog have gotten worse. You need to change your course, go a different direction, because you will not be able to see the towers. And he said, trust me, I've got this under control. When he finally broke through the clouds, he was right in downtown New York City, surrounded by all of those skyscrapers. And in a B-25, you can't just climb immediately back up. And he flew the plane into the 78th and 79th floor of the Empire State Building. I think to this day, the only plane that's ever crashed into the Empire State Building. It killed himself and the two passengers on board the bomber. It killed 11 people in the building and injured 25 others. A few were killed in the elevator when it hit. It went in far enough to break the cables that were carrying the elevator, and um, that's part of the 11 that were killed inside the building. I often think about that story when I'm reading through Proverbs because to me, Proverbs seems like the tower calling out the warning signals to the plane, saying there are dangers and you may not be able to see them. The clouds may be thick enough and the fog may be low enough that you just can't see the dangers you might want to change your course. It's God lovingly telling us in the book of Proverbs, there are dangerous spots out there. And we sometimes in our arrogance say, I've flown this route before. I know exactly what I'm doing. You don't need to warn me about where all the dangers are in life. But Proverbs is such a practical book about where those very common everyday um, experiences in life are where we need to take God's advice and be warned. Proverbs warns us about many things, including marital unfaithfulness, laziness, drinking, pressure from the crowd, gossip, poor friendships, financial matters, violence, anger, lying, dishonest business practices, perverse speech, and dozens more. Practical things where God's warning us there's danger here. You may not be able to see it. Lots of dangers in life, they are hidden. Sin is deceptive, and we just don't see the danger until we finally break through the clouds and we're surrounded. Tonight I want to talk just for a minute about our growing comfortable with things that God hates. And in Proverbs chapter 6, God graciously tells us some things that he hates. And I would like for us just to take a minute tonight to make sure we haven't grown comfortable with some of those things he hates. Everybody hates some things. And I don't know what you hate. 
unless I watch you long enough, and maybe I can pick up on some of the clues you give me as to what you hate in life, or if you're kind enough just to tell me what you hate. We were talking about it with some of the international students this morning. Some of the things um, I had to tell them, I said, I, I hate snakes. I've never met a snake I like. And one of the girls was saying, well, I, I kind of hate water, and yet she's taking this canoeing class at Swasu down at Crowder Lake. So I had to tell her, you know, that lake is full of snakes too. And she's like, oh, now I hate both. I'm going to hate my canoeing class because I'm scared of water, and I hate snakes. I said, well, I, I, hate, I hate snakes more than anybody. I have to tell you that or you don't know it, or you could watch my life long enough and figure out. But if you're kind enough to tell me what you hate, then I'll know in advance. God is kind enough in the Bible to tell us what he hates, and we should not ignore that. Now, in Proverbs chapter 6, I want to make sure you realize th this isn't everything God hates. It's a short list where God's kind enough to tell us what he hates, but it's not an exhaustive list. I just wanted to read one other passage before we, um, before we go to Proverbs 6. Let me read to you something out of Deuteronomy chapter 12. When the Lord God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, the people who are about to enter the promised land, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you do not ensnare yourself to follow after them after they have been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same in serving my God? You shall not worship the Lord your God in those ways. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, those people have done before their gods, for they even burn their own sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. Do not add to it or take away from it. As God's people were about to enter the promised land, God had to say, you're going to go in among these people, and they had ways they worshipped false gods. Don't pick up any of those. I have, as the true God, I have the way I want you to worship me, and that's your only option. Don't inquire how they worshipped because I don't want any of those. In fact, I hate every one of those abominable ways. There's not one way they worship their God that I liked or that I want included in how you worship the true God of the Bible. So God does have places in the Bible where he tells us other things he hates, but in Proverbs chapter 6, he's kind enough to give us a short list of about seven things that he hates. I'm afraid, before we read the list, that I'll just tell you, I think the world tends to view God in such a way that they say God only loves. We want to focus on what God loves, and God does love. God is love. But God also hates. And I think because of that, the world expects his people, even if they don't want to be Christians, they expect Christians to only love. We should be the most loving people in the world, and there shouldn't be anything that we hate. That's what the world, I think, expects of God and of us. You only should be loving, don't ever hate anything. When the fact is, God hates and he loves, and his people should also hate and love. There's some things in life we shouldn't love, and we also shouldn't be neutral about them. We should have crossed over, and we actually hate them. We should be a people who are good at hating certain things. And a good place to start is for us to hate what God hates. So the truth is, God hates and we should too. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, God tells us, hate what is evil and be devoted or cling to what is good. We're actually commanded in Romans chapter 12 as Christians 
that we're to hate what is evil. So there are things that we do not love, and we actually hate them. So we'll start on finding some things we should hate by looking at the things God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. Look at verse 16. Here's the short list. Therefore, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And here are the seven. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. I want to take just a minute tonight to talk about each one of those seven. Father, in the next few minutes, we're going to talk about your heart and the things that deep in the heart of God you have a, a hatred for, a holy hatred. Don't let us assume that all you do is love. I pray we wouldn't grow comfortable with these things, even though we live in a world that's very comfortable with them, that you would do a work in our hearts tonight to hate these. First, in our own lives, we would hate them anytime they show up in our lives. But we would hate them, God, because you hate them, and we would hate them anywhere they're found. In Christ's name, amen. Number one, he says, haughty eyes. So God hates pride. Haughty eyes is another way to say pride. Haughty eyes look down on people. Haughty eyes come from a proud heart. You think you're better than others. You think you're above others. Therefore, you're, you're, the vision you cast, the way you look out at people, is you assume you're better than they are, so you have haughty, arrogant, cocky eyes. Others are not as rich as you. They're not as smart as you. They're not as important as you. They're not as valuable as you. They're not as old as you. Therefore, you look down on them. We've been stressing to the college students on Wednesday night out of 1 Timothy that Paul told Timothy, don't let people look down on you because of your youth. 1 Timothy chapter 4. There's a tendency for older people to look down on younger people because you're younger. And Paul tells Timothy, take that, take every excuse away from them. Don't let them do that. Well, Proverbs chapter 6 says there's a, there's a sense in which people who think they're better for whatever reason than other people, they have this haughty look about them. For these people, it's always about them. Haughty eyes means it's always about you, your accomplishments, your rights, your abilities, your dreams, your recognition, your fame, your skills, and you think in all those areas you're more important or better than other people. It shows up sometimes very subtly in our lives. We sometimes think, how dare you treat me that way? which implies I'm too important to be treated that way. If you knew who I was, you wouldn't treat me that way. And they can even cross over and we're like, God, how dare you treat me that way? How dare you put me in this place in life? I deserve better than this. That is a step toward this pride in my life that, God, I deserve better than the way you're treating me. I deserve better than what you've given me in life. If you're a sovereign God, fix this because I deserve better than this. When the truth is, if I live to see another sunrise, it's just God's grace. If I get what I deserve, I don't even see the sunrise tomorrow because I'm a sinner in rebellion against God, and it's his grace extended to me that lets me even see another week. 1 Peter chapter 5 supports um, this opposition God has to haughty eyes. 
all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud. Proverbs chapter 6, God hates haughty eyes. We live in a culture that celebrates pride and self-promotion. It's all about you. We see it in all, all different areas. Um, our greatest athletes, they do something well on the field or on the court, and, and they want to make sure everybody knows it was them, and they celebrate it. It's their moment when they know the camera's on them. People are, are constantly finding ways to, to promote themselves and tell other people what they're like. Some have even argued that pride is, is the root of all sin. God can't tell me no. I overrule God when I sin. I make my own decisions. I'm the decider in my life, not God. That's that's, that's the root of pride in my life. Every time I willingly sin, it probably stems from this pride in my life that I have the right to do this no matter what God says. I deserve this or that. God doesn't set boundaries for me. It showed up early in the Bible. God, I'll eat from whatever tree I want to eat from in the garden. That's pride. So he starts with haughty eyes and says, I, I, I hate that. God hated it all the way back in Genesis 3, and nothing's changed. Then he says, a lying tongue. So God hates pride, and God hates lying. Proverbs 12, says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in men who are truthful. He delights in men and women who are truthful. I tried to think through why we lie. Probably all of us at one time or another have lied. Sometimes we lie to get out of trouble, even starting at an early age. Probably more than once, my parents said, hey, did you take that toy from your brother? No. Because I was trying to get myself out of trouble. Did you say that? No. And I did say it. Sometimes we lie to take something that's not ours. People lie on their tax returns so they don't have to pay what they're legally supposed to pay. And if they lie on their tax returns, they can then take something that wasn't theirs. People lie to their employers. They weren't really sick, but they took a sick day. What, what are they doing? They're lying so they can take something that's not theirs. Sometimes we lie to make ourselves look better. We like to call that exaggerating, but it's lying. Sometimes we lie to make other people look worse. We make up a story about them that's not true. God says, I hate all of it. I hate a lying tongue. In John chapter 8, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies, and when he lies, he's speaking his native language. Then in Hebrews, we find out that it's impossible for God to lie. So we have to choose who do we want to be like. Our Father in heaven who never lies or Satan, when he lies, he's speaking his native tongue. There's an interesting list. We don't take the time to, to, look, to turn there, but in Revelation chapter 21, God's putting a list of people um, who he finds abominable, and there's sorcery and a list of what we would consider really dark, back, bad sins, black sins, and then in the list he slips in and liars. 
right there in the list of these that we would, we would want to never be guilty of, and yet sometimes we find reasons to be dishonest. I just, I just want Christians to deal faithfully with each other and the world so that when, when we give our word, it's totally trustworthy. We don't tell half-truths. We don't tell half-lies. We're just people who say yes, and our yes means yes, and our no means no. People wouldn't have to make us sign a contract because it's not going to make us any more honest than if we didn't sign the contract. Because if we say we're going to do it, we're not looking for loopholes. We're just honest people. So, God hates a lying tongue. Um, notice as we go through this list that he's moving through the body. You might skip over these and not realize that's what he's doing. He starts with the eyes. He hates haughty eyes. And now he's moved to the tongue and he hates a lying tongue. And third, he's going to go to hands. He hates hands that shed innocent blood, so God hates murder. Life is sacred because we're made in God's image. We bear the stamp of God on our life. All the way back in the book of Genesis, God, God when he created mankind, he made us different than all the rest of his creation, and we were made in his image. And so from the very first murder, the very first act of violence toward another human being, God said, that will have to be punished. I think made in God's image means a lot of things, but it, it definitely means that we, we bear a conscience. Even the early chapters of Romans says we have a conscience, a warning system inside us that goes off whenever we make a mistake, whenever we sin against God. The rest of God's animal kingdom doesn't have a conscience. We also have morals. Your dog or cat may misbehave, but they're not immoral. They just didn't do what you wanted them to. When we don't do what God wants us to, it's a moral issue. And finally, we're made in God's image means that we're, we have a soul that will last for eternity. And the rest of God's creation, animals, and they don't. We, we uniquely bear the stamp of God on our life, and because of that, God says, anybody that sheds innocent blood, I absolutely hate that. We live in a violent world, don't we? I, I was thinking back just through news in the last year. I read an article last year about they're estimating how many people have been killed in the last two decades from genocide in parts of the world. Hundreds of thousands of people slaughtered in what they call ethnic cleansing, just genocide. I mean, the world is filled with violence. My tribe wants to kill people in your tribe for no other reason than that you're not in my tribe. And just wholesale slaughter in some of these countries. I read an article last week about how many murders there are every weekend just in the city of Chicago. Have you seen any of that on the news? I mean, it is, they're not even sure what to do with it. It is absolutely rampant. That's in our, one of our own cities, and the police are like, we're, we're, we're at a loss. We don't, the violence has reached a place in Chicago where people don't even want to go out on the weekends. Not to mention the millions of babies that have been aborted. We live in a world that sheds innocent blood all the time. And God's like, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. This is not what I wanted for my creation. It started early, even in the, back of, in the book of Genesis. We only get to chapter 4 when we finally have one man kills another man. We only get four chapters into the Bible, and we already have one brother killing his other brother. And in chapter 6, right before Noah, and in the days of Noah, God says this, The earth was corrupt in God's sight, 
and the earth was filled with violence. So God says, I hate it. I, it's not just murder. That's the ultimate express, expression of shedding innocent blood, but, I, but I, I hate the violence in the world. Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and raises the bar a little bit. He says, you've heard, don't murder. I say, don't even hate. I don't even want you being violent toward other people in your heart. I don't even want you hating people. You can't even commit murder in your heart. So God hates pride. We live in a culture that celebrates it. God hates lying. We live in a world that rewards it if you're good enough at it. And God hates murder, and we live in a world that's absolutely filled with violence. Number four, as he keeps kind of moving through the body, he goes from eyes to a tongue to hands. Number four, a heart that devises wicked plans. God hates evil strategies. God hates lying. God hates murder. God hates pride. And God hates evil strategies. This, this is the idea when he says he hates a heart that devises wicked plans. This is the sin we do that's planned out. You, you had a, a plan for it. It's premeditated. The heart that works up a strategy to figure out how to sin. The goal is sin, so before we actually start sinning, we think through how we're going to solve any problems that might surface in our commitment to sin. We remove any obstacles that would keep us from sinning. It's planned out, premeditated. We, it's not just building a sinful house. It's actually developing the blueprint before you start building. That's what this one's about. I hate the people who actually put the blueprint together for how they're going to do wicked things because they plan it out in advance. How do we plan out our sin? How do we do it in advance? What preparations must be made? How can I sin better? How can I sin more efficiently? How can I make sure I don't get caught? Back in the days of Noah, again, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and how every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The thoughts of his heart. He was putting the plan together in the thoughts of his heart before he actually acted on them. You know, there are times in our life, guys, when evil takes us by surprise. Um, sin sets a trap for us. And we may not have seen it coming, and, and it doesn't excuse the sin, but it caught us off guard, and, and we sinned, and we hate it. That is not what this is. This is planning it out in advance. Well, I'm going to get through the rest of these. Number five, he moves down to feet on the body. God also hates feet that make haste to run to evil. Um, God hates an eagerness to join in. God hates an eagerness to join in. These are feet that run toward evil. There are times in our life, guys, whenever we were tempted we know what the right thing is to do, and it's happened to all of us, and yet we know what this other option is, and, and it's a struggle. And you stay in the fight, and you're praying about it, and you're memorizing scripture that would help you, and you may even pick a brother or sister in Christ as an accountability partner. You're doing everything you can. You're resisting. You're in the battle, and eventually you still get worn down. You slip. You compromise, and you sin. 
and it's still sin. And Christ still had to go to the cross for it. That's different than this person who runs toward evil. If you could compare it to a boxing match, the first guy goes 10 rounds and eventually gets worn down in his battle against sin, and he sins, and it's still wrong, but it took 10 rounds to beat him down. This guy gives in in the first few seconds of the first round. He runs toward evil. He rushes toward it. There is no battle. There is no struggle. There is no time. He's ready to sin. It's instant surrender, and he rushes toward it. Hebrews chapter 12, in trying to encourage the early Christians to think about Christ and how he struggled, says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Do you hear those words in that passage? He talks about enduring hostility. Don't grow weary. Struggle. Resist. Resist sin even to the point of shedding your own blood. Or you could do what this one in Proverbs 6 that God hates. He doesn't do any of that. The minute the opportunity opens, he rushes. He, ru he sprints toward evil. There is no battle at all in this person's life. If God lets me live another 40 years, there will be days that I fail in my battle against sin. If God lets me live another 40 days, there will be times that I fail in my struggle against sin and trying to be holy. But I, I want it to be in the 10th round. I want, by God's grace, to have fought and tried to be holy, but I still fail and I still mess up, and I want it to be in the 10th round, not in the first round. I want to endure and fight and struggle and resist. And then if I still give in, and I hope I don't, but I just know myself, I will. We all sin. First John says you can't claim to be without sin. We're, we're going to fail in the future. Is it instant surrender, or is it I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought and I fought, and I intended to win, but I still sinned. What God hates here is the person who just makes haste. They can't get to sin quick enough. The one before it is the one who plans it out. This is the one who just rushes toward it. Well, the sixth thing he says he hates is a false witness who breathes out lies. That's almost identical to the second one. God hates perjury. The first one, I would say God hates lying. This one, God hates perjury. The second one he mentions seems to imply lying in an official capacity. You're a false witness. You were called because you were an eyewitness. You were called because you... You should know the truth. You were there, and they want to know what you think. So it's in an official capacity. The other one is just lying in everyday life. He hates a lying tongue, but when you're called on in an official capacity, you were there, Doug. Did Larry use that word or not? No, he didn't. Yes, he did. You, you, you were there, and they're counting on your integrity and your character to tell the truth. And God says, when that happens, not only do I hate lying in everyday life, but I hate it when it's in an official capacity and you still can't tell the truth. God hates both. Then the last thing God hates is one who sows discord among brothers. God hates the divisive. You just stir up trouble because you enjoy stirring up trouble. You sow discord among the family. 
God loves unity, and he hates stirring up dissension without cause. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. It's the same idea. There are people that promote peace. They try to help others get along. And there are other people, and the image is that of a farmer. He's sowing, he's planting, and he goes around sowing discord. Romans chapter 12 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's the goal. It's not always possible. Jesus himself did not live at peace with everyone. He had some people furious with him. He said some things that made them furious at him. And he knew when he said it, it was going to make them furious with him. So obviously there are times when for the sake of the truth, conflict is unavoidable. And you better go ahead and tell the truth because God hates a lying tongue, right? Remember that one. Don't lie just to keep the peace. But you're not sowing discord. You're sowing truth. And the consequence was someone didn't like it, and so they got upset. But the goal was never just to, I wonder if I could split up these two friends. I wonder if I could make this person not like this person. I wonder if I could just cause ripples on the pond. While there is peace, I wonder if I could mess it up. God hates people who sow discord. That's what they plant in life. They go around breaking up unity. Well, he walks through really seven things in the body, eyes that are haughty, a tongue that lies, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plans out evil, feet that run to sin. He really kind of moves to the lungs. He said, I, I hate someone who breathes out lies, a false witness who breathes out the lies, and someone then who goes around sowing disunity. Proverbs chapter 6 gives us a short list. I wonder how many of those things we really hate. We're not just mildly upset about them when we see them pop up in our own lives, but we have a holy hatred for them. If we see them in our own lives, we lose sleep over it. We, we can't imagine why we let that in. We see pride start to prop up and pop up in our lives, and we think we're a little better than somebody else, and when God convicts us of it, we don't justify it and be like, well, I am a little better than them. We hate it. We hate it the way God hates it. We realize we shaded the truth and intended to actually deceive somebody, and we weren't honest, and we, we absolutely hate it when that happens. It's a dangerous place to grow comfortable with things that God hates. And because we live in a world that's so comfortable with these seven things, we're tempted to become comfortable with them. Listen, you become a man or woman who always, without exception, 100% of the time, tells the truth, and you will stand out. You will be an oddity in this world. I remember hearing a, a man pay a compliment to a friend of mine one time, and he said, I don't think he could tell a lie if his life depended on it. And I thought, what an unbelievable compliment to pay to this man. If he had to, he'd probably die before he told a lie. He said, I, I don't even think it's capable for him to tell a lie. Can that be us? We have such a hatred for the things that God hates that we begin to hate these seven things as well. Why does God hate them? You ever read through a list like that and think, all right, I, I, I recognize the seven things, but why? Why does God hate those things? I think it's a couple of things. I think God knows that nothing good ever comes from those seven things. And if nothing good ever comes from them, God hates them. 
But I also think it's because these seven things are contrary to his character. God hates things that are contrary to his character, things that are consistent with his character he loves. Lying is so contrary to his character. For his creation to be cocky and arrogant and proud, Jesus came and was a humble man. That's contrary to God's character. To intentionally sow discord is contrary to God's character. Can you imagine if in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if each of those three were going around sowing discord in the Godhead, in the Trinity, what that would be like? We'd be like, that's not, God sows unity even in himself. These things are so contrary to his character that he hates them, and he knows that they don't bring anything good in our lives, so he hates them. You know, I was thinking if, if a father or a dad got onto his kids for being disrespectful to their mother, and yet the kids watched every day him be disrespectful to their mother, they would say, Dad, why do you get so upset when we just do what's consistent with your character? But if it's contrary to the dad's character, he's always respectful, never violent toward his wife, always treats her with honor, then... He's not a hypocrite when he tells his kids growing up, you better treat your mother the way you see me treat your mother. It's consistent with his character. And these things are so contrary to God's character, he doesn't want to see him in his children because he doesn't see him in his life. I would just encourage you this week to pick out one of them that maybe God has kind of um, laid on your heart tonight or convicted you. Just pick one of these and say, God, in this next week, between this Lord's Day and the next, would you help me hate that even more in my life? Whichever one it may have been, and it's none of my business, it's between you and the Lord. But as God may have laid one on your heart, say, God, double my hatred for that this week. If you hate it, I want to be like you. Help me hate it the way you do. Let me pray. Thank you for listening tonight and letting me open God's word. Father, Proverbs has just some little nuggets like this that, that really are, they give us a glimpse into your heart and character. They give us a glimpse into life in a fallen world. They give us those uh, dangers, those warnings like, Hey, the clouds are low here, it's foggy, you may not see it, but there's danger, and we rush headlong sometimes ahead, not believing. Help us as we read through Proverbs to, to see the warning signs. I pray Proverbs would make us wise, wise beyond our years, wiser than the people in the world, heavenly wisdom, as the book of James calls it. And even tonight, let us start by hating the things you hate. Help us, like Proverbs 12 says, to abhor what is evil, but cling to and be devoted to everything that's good. Make us that kind of people in Christ's name. Amen.